Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. The idea I want to explore in this episode of the Brookings Cafeteria is Islam. It has 1.6 billion adherents around the world, making it the world's second largest religion behind Christianity. 25% of the world's population are Muslim. 1% of the U.S. population are Muslim. Over 50 countries around the world have a Muslim majority, from the Middle East to South Asia to Africa. My guest today is Shadi Hamid, a senior fellow with the Brookings Project on U.S. Relations with the Islamic World, which is part of the Center for Middle East Policy. He's the author of many books and articles about Middle East issues and Islam, including his latest work, Islamic Exceptionalism, How the Struggle Over Islam is Reshaping the World. Stay tuned after the interview to hear from another scholar in our Syrian Refugee Crisis series on rights and responsibilities. Shadi, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Fred. Thanks for having me. I had you on the show a few years ago. It's the only episode I've ever had to actually split into two episodes because our conversation (laughs) was uh, so broad and so interesting. But I appreciate your time coming in today, and uh, I look forward to this conversation. And what I wanted to do was try to focus on Islam as a personal and a political matter based on your own experience. Let me ask you first if you would just briefly explain um, your biography. Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, so uh, I was I was born and raised here in the U.S. in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania. My parents came from Egypt in the 1970s. My dad in the 70s, my mom in 1980. And my parents grew up under uh, an authoritarian regime in Egypt. I mean, they weren't very political growing up. And it's been interesting to kind of see how they've changed politically as a result of being and becoming American, which is probably something we'll talk about, what it means to be an American Muslim. But I myself, um, uh, 9-11 was a formative moment for me in terms of my own political ed- education. And that moment was kind of a double tragedy, I think, for many of us as American Muslims, both as Americans, but also as Muslims that here were extremists and terrorists who were acting in our name and claiming that this was Islam. And that was something that I think a lot of us had to process, 9-11 being the the first major terrorist event in the U.S. on the homeland for for those of us who had grown up in America, right? So, um, and it was then that I decided that I wanted to learn more about the Middle East, focus more on the Middle East, and also understand what went wrong. Clearly something in the broader relationship between the U.S. and the Middle East hadn't been going well for some time. Here was a region full with growing instability, chaos, Um, more of an extremist problem, growing anti-Americanism. These were things that we were seeing on a daily basis. So I wanted to understand um, more of the context there. And really ever since then, I've been moving in this particular direction of being a student of the Middle East. And my focus is on studying and understanding and researching Islamist movements and Islam's role in politics more generally. And my starting point as a researcher is that we don't have to like Islamist groups, but we have to understand them. And here I'm referring to mainstream Islamist groups, not the far-right extremists of ISIS. And that's what I've spent a lot of my own work on. That was uh, the the topic of uh, a book you published a couple of years ago. Um, Shadi, I want to ask you a, a 
pretty personal question, and I, and I hope that's okay. Um, <laughs> as an American Muslim, what does Islam mean to you personally? Well, I certainly identify as a Muslim, as an American Muslim. And I mean, I'm not the most practicing person in the world, but I think um, culturally, culturally, my identity is important to me. And that's also intertwined with my identity as an Arab American, as an Egyptian American. Um, and I did grow up in an American Muslim community in the sense that there were not so many, but certainly some Muslims around. We also had a local mosque. And, you know, uh, many of us uh, went to Sunday school, I guess, the way many Christians do, where, you know, you learn a little bit about religion, culture, history. And I think my, my Muslim identity became more important the more I became interested in the Middle East. I guess, like, one fascinating part of the work that I do is, even though I know quite a lot about Islam, I feel like I've learned a lot more over the past five to ten years by spending more time in the region and becoming a part of these debates about Islam's role in public life and trying to get a better grasp of that. And one thing I've really come to appreciate more is that Islam is a really complicated religion. When you dive into the theology, history, and culture, um, it's not the easiest religion to understand. I don't think it's conducive to sound bites. We, and I think that's what a lot of people on both sides of the debate want. So I have Muslim friends who will insist that Islam is a religion of peace, which sounds nice, but what does that really tell us? What does it really even mean to say Islam is a religion of peace? It also doesn't make sense to say Islam is a religion of violence. Like most things, it's somewhere in between. It depends what interpretations we're talking about. Um, Muslims are different. They have different views. Um, So we can't say that um, Islam is entirely one thing or entirely something else. And that's why I think that we have to appreciate complexity. And those of us who don't know as much about Islam, I think it's important to tr- for Americans to learn more, to read more, and to resist the temptation to pigeonhole Islam as one thing or another. I think that's great. And, and uh, to say that it's a really complicated religion puts me in mind of Christianity, which is a faith in which I grew up. Uh, in Texas, my my mom was a Southern Baptist, but she talked then about regular Baptists and mainline Protestants and evangelical Protestants, and you have Lutherans and Methodists, and I mean, you know all this, and of course the yeah, Catholic yeah. Church and Eastern Orthodox Church and all kinds of different professions of the Christian faith, and it's super complicated, and definitely, as you say, not reducible to sound bites. We hear a lot about the uh, the Shia and the Sunni branches of Islam. I know, again, there's, there's, it's yeah. a lot more complicated than that, but those are the two of the main ones we hear, especially in relation to sort of geopolitical groups, national groups in the Middle East like Iran and uh, maybe Hezbollah or Hamas and, and different ways that Islam is practiced around the world. Can you just briefly um, speak to those two? When I was growing up, I never really thought of myself as Sunni, even though I guess, I mean, that's what I am, a Sunni Muslim. But that was a time where sectarian identities weren't as entrenched. This was pre-Iraq war. And that was one of the key kind of inflection points in making more and more people in the Middle East aware of, wait, am I Sunni Shia? 
and the divide became more clear. But when I was growing up, it would have been probably a weird question to ask me, hey, Shadi, are you Sunni or Shia and what does that really mean? And in some ways, it's a manufactured division, but in other ways, also a very real one that is steeped in, in history. And it's a mix of both, and that's what makes it a potent divide, that there's some theology, there's some history, there's some political grievance. And so basic, the basic difference is about um, who leads the Muslim community, which might sound like a purely political issue, but one of one of the points I try to make in my new book is that these categories of something either being religious or political, the two are often intertwined in very complex ways. And I think it's a product of classical liberalism, post-enlightenment thought to say that religion is something you can separate and you can put it in this box and say, oh, that's religion and everything else is secular or political. Where I think the way people actually live their lives in the Middle East, that these things are are difficult, if not impossible, to separate. So that's, I think, a really important point here. But to go back to the Sunni-Shia divide, so Sunnis would say that um, the leader of the Muslim community or the caliph, let's say, at least in the pre-modern era, should be chosen through a process of consensus, consensual decision-making among elites in the community, where Shias would say that leadership should stay in the house of the prophet, that there's a bloodline there, and the relationship to the prophet and lineage from the prophet is a critical component of that. And there's almost a kind of divine inspiration that is that is part of being the uh, part of being uh, of the prophet's house, let's say. And um, and I think so. The political grievance side is important in that Shias, but also obviously also Sunnis, and this is where it's it complicated that the Prophet's grandson was killed in a battle, the Battle of Karbala, and that's seen as a very seminal moment in in Shia history, but also in Islamic history, in that the Prophet's grandson is dear to all Muslims. Here's someone who is the blood of the Prophet his family, and he is actually killed uh, along with his supporters in a pretty brutal way by the caliph at the time during the Umayyad, during the Umayyad caliphate. But Shias in particular see this as a symbolic moment that shows that even the prophet's house, his family, was being betrayed and killed and tortured. Um, and this is where I think Greek there's a sense of grievance that is very much based in history, steeped in a historical memory, which gets to, I think, a broader point that, hey, history matters. History didn't start in 2011 with the Arab Spring or with the Iraq invasion of 2003. Those events kind of um, are critical, but I think if we really want to understand why people's identities, why their religious allegiances are so powerful to them in a personal way, and it feels raw and existential, we have to go back further. But that's nothing unique to the uh, to the Islamic world. You see this, uh, this sense of historical meaning and memory playing out uh, in uh, the Jewish world and the Christian world as well. Uh, the Irish remember battles that happened a couple hundred years ago. There was 
in the uh, Balkans. There was memory of, a, I think it was a 14th century battle that was kind of replayed during the Kosovo conflict. So, yeah, th- there are certainly parallels, but I think that if you're talking to Americans, at least this was my experience growing up um, in the U.S., is that there's a limit to how far you go back. And even you talk about the founding fathers. Um, but but my feeling was that there wasn't the same kind of intimacy th- there, the way that many Muslims talk about the Prophet's companions and in particular the um, uh, some of the early leaders of the Muslim community, Abu Bakr, Omar, Uthman, Ali, and those four are particularly important um, since they were the closest to the prophet. And um, the way we, the way in Sunday school you would talk about, we would, it was almost like we were on a first-name basis with the prophet's companions. So it was like, oh, Omar this, Omar that, or Abu Bakr this, Abu Bakr that. And these are people who were alive 14 centuries ago, and it seemed to me that there was a kind of intimacy there. I don't know. Uh, I wonder if there is something comparable um, I don't think um, – I guess the Founding Fathers are the closest comparison, I guess, for Americans. Um, I'm not sure if that's the way that a lot of Christians, at least the Christians that I know, would talk about Paul. My sense is that, it, you know – well, anyway, that's a – I guess it also depends what uh, Protestant, Catholic, you know, evangelical and so on. But I think that intimacy and how history feels – History feels alive to many Muslims. I think that's something that's worth appreciating that. And it also gets to this question, and I think it was a conversation that you would hear on dinner tables, um, you know, living in the Middle East, these things would come up a lot. Hey, you know, we used to be, we in quotation marks, um, used to be the greatest civilization the world had ever seen, or one of them, let's say. Um and, uh, you know, scientific and technological progress, the greatest philosophers and thinkers well, were Europe in, was bad, in the dark Yeah, ages. exactly. And there's a sense of, okay, Muslims used to be that. And there is this historical memory of the great caliphates and so on. But then look what Muslims became. And I think a lot of, a lot of the challenge today is sort of captured in this idea of, there was a rise and there was a fall and making sense of what went wrong, how it went wrong, and this profound dissonance that or even ordinary Muslims feel. And this is and that's why that's why it's something that people talk about. Hey, this kind, you know, this kind of sucks. Look what happened to us. It's one of the most, I think, precipitous declines in human history to see where the Middle East is now and where it once was not so long ago. So I think that so history has a kind of meaning. There's an accumulated weight over time, and it's a heavy history. It's a heavy weight. Your new book is titled Islamic Exceptionalism. In what way is Islam exceptional? So I argue in my book that Islam is in fact exceptional in how it relates to politics and that in both theory and practice, Islam has proven to be resistant to secularization and secularism. And what that means 
is that hopes for a reformation are misplaced. Reformation in the kind a, of the Western Christian sense. A kind Christian of like sense. replicating a, a Protestant reformation and saying, hey, you Muslims, look at all the mess that you're in with all your violent conflict. You guys have to go through the same thing we went through as, um, you know, Christians in Europe. And this, I think there's this desire to impose these paradigms on the Muslim world and say, you have to go through reformation, then enlightenment, modernization, secularism, end of history of liberal democracy. So there's this kind of linear linear, uh, progression. And I want to challenge readers to, to either rethink that or think beyond that or question those assumptions that just because Christian Europe went through something and it seemed to have gone fairly well in the sense that Europe and the U.S. are maybe not as successful as we might like them to be, but they're doing pretty good compared to the Middle East. But this idea that, oh, all people's cultures and societies have to follow this same particular path. And this go this takes me back to history that why might Islam be resistant to secularization in a way that Christianity wasn't. And part of that has to do with the founding moments of religions. And the founding moment of Islam is different than the founding moment of Christianity. Jesus was a dissident against a reigning state. The New Testament doesn't have a lot to say about law, politics, and governance because Jesus was never in a position to govern. That wasn't the point. That wasn't, that wasn't the idea. The idea was much more about um, Jesus dying, dying for our sins and a kind of a salvation story, which is a different salvation story than the one that we mm-hmm. see in Islam. You would say render under Caesar, what is Caesar's render under God, what is exactly. God's? Exactly. That's one example. But there are other examples in the New Testament that see the law as something that is heavy, divisive, unnecessary, and so on. But in Islam, Prophet Muhammad wasn't just a prophet. He was also a politician and and more than that, a head of state and more than that, a state builder. And I think being a state builder has major implications for how a religion evolves because how does one build a state? Historically, the only real way to build a state was by taking control over territory. And usually people weren't so nice as to hand over the territory. You had to engage in warfare. So naturally... There, um, in that sense, Prophet Muhammad is also someone who participated in battle, um, in battles that are very important in the Islamic historical memory. Uh, so I think all these things – so Muslims aren't bound to their founding moment. No one's bound to their founding moment. People change. Cultures evolve. But you, we can't also say that the founding moment is irrelevant. So it does matter – that religious and political functions were intertwined in the person of Prophet Muhammad. That has to matter because the prophetic model in Islam is important. Muslims are supposed to emulate the Prophet to some extent, at least, and to admire him and look up to him and look at his example. Um, So you can't ignore what happened 14 centuries ago. It still matters. It's only really a debate about how much does it matter, how much should it matter, but I don't think anyone can argue that it's irrelevant. So let's shift over to the uh, the current politics uh, of the day, especially here in the U.S. Last year, we heard uh, Donald Trump during the GOP primary process propose a ban on all Muslims 
uh, all Muslim immigrants coming to the United States. In the last few weeks, he and his campaign have kind of walked that back or walked that around to say we didn't mean all Muslims, we mean maybe Muslims from terrorist countries, whatever that means. Um, you recently wrote in a piece on our site, uh, and I'll quote here, Trump has less respect for the American Constitution than the vast majority of American Muslims, many of whom, like me, are the children of immigrants. In Trump's America, it so happens, my parents would have been banned from ever entering in the first place. Can you expand on this notion of this Muslim ban? Yeah, so, well, first of all, the problem with talking about anything that Trump does is, hey, does he really mean it? What's going on here? And his position also shifts quite rapidly depending on the context or him trying to please certain audiences. But anyway, um, what was so troubling to me, well, first of all, I should share at least one anecdote from when the proposed ban was first announced in December. And it was actually funny because just just a little bit after that, uh, my, me and my family, we were on vacation in Florida and we, and we were in vacation in a in a place that, uh, let's put it this way, wasn't very diverse. I think we were the only, we were probably the only brown people in this particular in this particular town that we were in. Um, and I remember walking into a cafe with my with my dad, and on TV there were these um, people debating the Muslim ban because, and you know, you had these clips of Trump explaining his position and talking about it and all that. And I felt, okay, look, here are, all, here are all these people on TV talking about us as Muslims. We had become, in a weird way, this object of concern that people were talking about, almost as, as if we were like this undifferentiated mass, the Muslims. What do the Muslims think? What does Trump think about the Muslims? And I was thinking to myself, we're walking in, and the barista guy um, there was no one else in the cafe, and I was wondering, he's been hearing this stuff nonstop on his TV screen, everyone talking about whether or not Muslims are a threat and whether or not Muslim immigrants should be banned. And that, that, can't, that can't not have an effect on you if you're hearing that day in and day out. And this is why I think the Trump phenomenon is, I think, an important one in, in a negative way for our country in the sense that he's – He's made ideas that were previously outside the mainstream. He's brought them into the mainstream to the extent that people talk about this a lot now on national television, Muslims this, Muslims that, whatever. And the fact that the, nom the presumptive nominee of one of our two major political parties has made it safe to talk about these things in public and to talk about Muslims in a certain way is quite frightening. And I guess like I... I'd, I had been here in the U.S. after 9-11, and that was a scary time, and we didn't know how people, how, Ameri you know, how, how Americans who didn't know Muslims and weren't familiar with Islam or Muslims would react to, towards American Muslims like myself. Luckily, I think there was leadership from President Bush for all, his, all of his faults who really made an effort to say, hey— American Muslims are American Muslims and they should be accepted as such and, you know, bigotry is not acceptable. Now that is not the case. Now you don't hear um, Republican leaders making those same kind of statements. So I think it's a scary time more than 9-11. And this is what I hear from, you know, pretty much all my Muslim friends and colleagues who, who live here in the U.S. 
what we're feeling today is something different. It feels different in ways that are sometimes hard to describe. And that's why I'm having trouble describing it right now. But something seems off. Something seems wrong. But it's part of this kind of global moment of uncertainty, of fear, where the liberal democratic project um, in Europe, in the U.S. is coming under strain, where you have the rise of far-right parties, xenophobia, hyper-nationalism, white nativism, you name it. Something, something is different. And the foundations, I think, of who we are as Americans are being challenged. Um, so that's part of it. And what I meant in this particular passage was, so Trump gave a, he gave a national security speech the day after the Orlando shooting. And he said, he pretty much, he pretty, he, well, he suggested um, that um, Omar Mateen's parents perhaps shouldn't have been allowed in the country in the first place. The Orlando shooter. The Orlando shooter's parents shouldn't have been allowed in the country in the first place. And he was born in, uh, in Queens. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's an he's, uh, American citizen born in the U.S. But the idea that people might might retroactively wonder whether or not the parents of Muslims, whether or not they should have been allowed to enter in the first place, that sort of thing. Wait, should, would the would would this retroactive Muslim immigration ban, hypothetically, would that have prevented my parents from entering the U.S. in the first place? Um, you know, uh, I think that my American identity. I very much – my political views are a product of being a child of immigrants. I mean I've been an outspoken supporter of U.S. leadership in the world and the U.S. promoting democracy abroad and that our ideals matter. When people are being killed in a place like Syria, I believe that there is a moral obligation as Americans to to help to help stop the killing that we should move away from our past support of autocratic regimes and and supporting democracy should be a key part of our foreign policy. I think that we as Americans should stand for something beyond the narrow interests of the nation state. And I think that we're one of the last nations that aspires to stand for something, that there is a sense. So and this is really important too in that I think being French, there's a kind of um, there's an ethnic, cultural, linguistic component to it. It's hard to become French. Um, where, what's I think great about America, at least up until now, um, maybe it'll change, is that um, you can become American because it's not about being white or having a certain ethnicity. It's not about race. It's about believing in the American project, right? And that's why it's been it's been really interesting to sort of watch to see how my to watch my parents and to see how they became American. They are American now, um, and uh, you know, for them to it took them some time, but when they voted for the first time, and you know, I remember the first time my dad was interested in volunteering for a campaign, and he asked me like, "Shaddy, so like, how do I get involved in a campaign?" And like that, that's that was really interesting for me to to see that they felt that this was their country now, and they had a stake in it, and they wanted to fight for it. And I, I've even we've had these discussions on the dinner table about, hey, Trump, um, what happens if Trump wins? What does that mean for us? And 
you know, it's always been this joke, would we leave the country, you know, oh, well, people going to Canada if Trump wins, that sort of thing, which is kind of a joke. But in the case of, you know, in the case of my family, my dad is a dual American-Canadian citizen. So, I mean, he, you know, he could move to Canada if he wants to, right? So it's become, there is a kind of seriousness to the joke now that there wasn't there before, of what if things really got bad in this country, God forbid, for American Muslims. And I remember we've had these discussions. And, um, you know, I think there was this one time where I think my mom said something like, hey, you know, even if it gets bad, um, we're going to stay here. This is our country and we're going to fight for it. And we're not going to let anyone make us feel otherwise. And this idea that my parents who grew up under an authoritarian regime could feel could feel american in that kind of um in that kind of powerful way i mean that's inspiring and it also makes me think and feel that there are tens of millions of americans who will fight who will who will stay true and try their best to stay true to their country's founding ideals um even if someone like trump threatens them and we're we're not going to accept it. And that's what democracy is about is, you know, you express your beliefs and you fight your for your beliefs through the democratic process and you hope that other people listen to you. Well, I love this uh, this turn to becoming American. I think it's a fascinating topic as as someone who has studied family history, uh, what we're seeing today with the treatment of um, American Muslims and also Hispanic immigrants is somewhat similar to the kinds of uh, transitional moments we saw in the late 19th century with so many millions of immigrants coming from Europe and eventually, you know, assimilating or acculturating into the, yeah. uh, into the American body politic. Um, and so, but again, you said it was different though, and there is something different about what's happening today. I and mean, maybe it's just the politics of the time. I don't know. Well, it seems like so many bad things are happening all at once. I mean... You have Brexit. You have um, you have things that haven't gotten a lot of attention. Um, the recent elections in Poland, which have put in power some pretty illiberal populist politicians, um, a far right candidate almost won the Austrian presidential elections quite recently. It seems that people people are angry and frustrated. They don't perhaps they don't exactly know what the alternative should be. But there's a kind of cultural malaise almost. And that's never a good situation for, you know, immigrants or those who have recently arrived and, and so on. And a big part of it in Europe is this anti-immigrant um, sentiment and the rise of nationalism. And people people want to hold – and I think this also gets into a question of who are we? What 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 is our natural predisposition as – you know, not to get all philosophical here, but I don't, I don't necessarily think that classical small l liberalism is the is is the natural starting point for humankind. And if, and in a way, we know that because for most of human history, liberalism has not been the starting point. That's a fairly recent phenomenon, right? But I think that there there is a there is a side to us that seeks meaning in our politics. And for whatever for a variety of reasons, our politics has not given 
given us the meaning that that we're seeking in the U.S. or Europe, and that's why people are moving in these other directions towards the ideologies that I mentioned earlier, you know, populism, xenophobia, what nationalism, whatever it might be. So that to me, so I'm thinking a lot about that, and it relates to the my my work and research and and my new book in particular. Because one reason why I think liberal democracy hasn't been as appealing in the Middle East and why religion has been such a resilient force is because small l liberal democracy doesn't address the foundational questions of who we are and what our purpose is. And me, you know, me and you, we might be fine with that because we can find meaning in our own lives in whatever way we, we you know, we want to. Um, but for some people, they that's not enough. They can't find that. They're struggling to find that and they want their politicians or they want their political system to help offer them a sense of purpose or meaning, right? And actually I'll just I'll just share an interesting anecdote you know that I think captures this to some extent of where people seek meaning. Um and um well, this might sound weird as I started, but you'll see where I'm going with it. So one of the first – the first time I ever saw someone doing drugs was actually in Egypt. And I was like relatively young at the time and um, I was with this this random guy in the back of a cab in Cairo. And I remember that he was um, – he was smoking hashish in the cab, um, which I guess is the Egyptian equivalent of marijuana. Uh, and um, I remember – we got in this conversation while he was high, he was going on about the need to establish an Islamic state and his desire for the implementation of Sharia. And I thought to myself, this is kind of odd that it would be coming from someone who's currently high and smoking hashish. But we were talking more and he explained it to me and he said, he told me he didn't think that he should be doing drugs. He felt guilty about it. And he wanted the state to force him to stop doing drugs. And I think this sort of captures this idea that some people can – they don't want to do it on their own or they can't do it on their own. They want this idea of a society or a state or a community around them that sets certain normative standards and that tells them and helps them understand how they want to live their lives. And I think that's a powerful impulse that we have as human beings. And the question is, what fills that gap? Um, and you hope that it's the good things rather than the bad. But sometimes in the case of the U.S. and the kind of the, the Trump phenomenon, it seems like a lot of people are finding meaning in a kind of um, xenophobia and white nativism. And... I would hope that people can find meaning in other places besides that. But I think it, in that sense, it's not just – in the Middle East, it's more about religion. But I think what we're seeing in the Western world is that there, there are some of the same questions um, but with different answers, let's say. You just mentioned Sharia. Uh, do you think that the phenomenon here in the U.S. of uh, uh, states and localities trying to ban Sharia law – and again, I'll remind listeners that Muslims account for 1% of this country's population that attempts to ban Sharia law is reflective of this kind of xenophobia and white nativism? Yeah, so the, in, some, in some states and, and some, you know, uh, 
some localities and city councils and what, whatever it might be, there ha- there have been some efforts to uh, to kind of pass resolutions having to do with fighting Sharia or Sharia's banned or things like that. And it's really bizarre because Muslims are in no position to, I mean, Again, like you said, it's a very small minority. So to act as if Muslims are going to take over and the and that Muslims are a threat, this idea that Muslims are a fifth column and we we have to protect against this creeping Islamization. Let's let's we have to call it for what it is. It's anti-Muslim bigotry, it's fear of the other. Um fear is a very powerful motivator. Um and in a lot of these places, you know, um you know, are there a lot of, you know, Muslims in Alabama or Tennessee? No. So it's odd that where people are having these debates are precisely the places where Muslims don't have much of a presence. But anyway, I think that luckily those things haven't spread too much on the national level. But there is this kind of discourse about, oh, creeping Islamization, creeping Sharia that we hear from some Republican congressmen and senators. It's It has become mainstreamed and to the extent that even Trump, again returning to the presumptive nominee, that Trump himself has said things like Islam hates us. He actually said that. Or um, uh, or things like Muslims in America have not assimilated. So he's essentially implying that Muslims are a potential threat because they haven't assimilated, they might be susceptible to radicalism and so on. The, the odd thing there is that I think the U.S., the integration story here in the U.S. is a relatively successful one compared to what we see in certain European countries where we do actually see quite a bit of tension, um, where uh, Muslims haven't been as well integrated, especially, you know, France and Britain have, have some of these problems to various degrees. The U.S. has done a pretty good job, and I think one reason there – there's a lot of reasons, but one one I'll mention is that because the U.S. is so – is at least in theory accepting of diversity and public expressions of religion um, in particular. So you can be an Orthodox Jew in an Orthodox Jewish community and kind of maintain your heritage and practices as a community, and that's not something that people look down on. That's embraced as part of – the 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 beauty of the social fabric of of the country that we live in our christian evangelicals have the freedom to express their faith as they see fit and they should be able to do that regardless of what anyone else thinks about it um and the same thing goes for if you are a conservative practicing muslim you shouldn't have to choose between being a conservative muslim and being an American, you can be both and the two shouldn't be in conflict. And and so far, that's been more or less the case, that you don't have to choose. In France, however, if you're a French Muslim woman and you wear and you wear the headscarf and you believe that's a religious obligation and you want to do that, you can't actually wear the headscarf in certain public institutions and schools and so on. So in a sense, you're forced as a French Muslim, as a French citizen, to choose between the, the aggressive secularism of the French state and your own religious practice. Thankfully, we don't have that. We, we haven't had that problem. And part of that, again, we are a country um, 
people who are persecuted for their religious beliefs, America was a refuge for them. So I think it's built into the very foundation of this country, this idea that there is room for rich religious expression. Well, isn't forcing that choice on a person to, to choose between her religious identity and her, say, national identity, the kind of choice that a group like ISIS is trying to force upon people in Western countries? Yeah, I mean, ISIS is is trying to tell Muslims that um, there is no place for Muslims in the West, that you, you, you're either with us or against us. I mean, that's pretty much ISIS's message. They don't, there isn't any gray zone. Um, and there isn't room for nuances or complex identities. So ISIS actually draws from this sense of a clash of civilizations. They want – so the, the, the point of terrorism, at least in part, is to provoke target populations or target states to do things they otherwise wouldn't do. Terrorists want to change the way we live. They want us to go against, in a way, our own ideals. Um, and so when Trump contributes to this divisive rhetoric and he portrays a kind of clash of civilizations, that's a sort of thing that feeds into ISIS's narrative that the West hates Islam or that the West hates Muslims. So why should we be falling into that trap? And that's – there's always a temptation to fall into those traps um, after terrorist attacks because people are afraid and understandably so. And I don't think that we should dismiss those fears as irrational. I mean sometimes – sometimes you'll hear people say things like, well, hey, terrorism isn't actually a big deal because there's a bigger chance that a piano will fall on your head from a seventh-story apartment than actually you getting caught up in a terrorist attack. That is statistically uh, – I think that's statistically true and there's a lot of other examples that people give. But that doesn't really address the real fear. I mean terrorism is scary because it, 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 it's supposed to – I mean that's the whole point. Terrorists try to terrorize us and it's understandable that people would be afraid, especially when you have a shooter going into a nightclub and something like that. So we shouldn't dismiss these fears as, a, as rational. Um, but at the same time, we shouldn't – we should be very careful not to fall into the divisive rhetoric that, um, that, that contributes to these very kind of black and white narratives. I, I know that some Americans – see their fears justified by when they see in the world acts of terrorism committed by groups that profess to be Muslim, when they see, uh, say, the Charlie Hebdo attacks uh, over the um, cartoons, to put it mildly, of the Prophet Muhammad, um, when they see um, other kinds of, of acts of violence around the world, and they connect that violence with the religion of Islam. Yes. Look, I mean, so I'm sort of I'm sort of in the middle in this particular debate about so for example, the question that's often raised, does ISIS have something to do with Islam or nothing to do with it? I'm not comfortable with I think the kind of apologetics of saying ISIS has absolutely nothing to do with Islam. It has absolutely nothing to do with maybe our un, my understanding of Islam and I think that there are perverting and distorting um, what Islam actually is. But at the same time, we can't deny that ISIS fighters and leaders believe, at least um, many of them or most of them, believe that what they're doing is commanded by God. So 
religious motivation is powerful, whether or not we agree with that motivation or where it's coming from or whether it's correct or not, they they believe it. And I think that's why we have to take take that seriously instead of dismissing it and saying, oh, there's no way that someone could possibly believe that um, their God or a God or whatever God could want them to do something like this. But yes, there are people who believe that. They are a tiny minority, but um, I wouldn't want to doubt their sincerity um, on, on, on some of these points. It's a scary sincerity, but it's one that we have to acknowledge if we want to understand who we're fighting. Um, when it comes to um, the specific issue of things like cartoons, first of all, the violent acts that have happened in response to certain cartoons, again, we're talking about very, very tiny minorities. So we shouldn't generalize based on that. But if, and that's if, just, they're not just cartoons. They really are vulgar depictions. Yeah, yeah, sure, Let's sure. Just... Um, and certainly, so this is this gets, to, I think, a broader point that are, are, there, um, are there large numbers of Muslims who were offended by these depictions of Prophet Muhammad and would would argue that there should be limits on freedom of speech. It is true, according to the polling that we have, that um, many, uh, depending on which country you're talking about and things like that, that there is a significant number of Muslims who think there should there should be um, there should be certain limitations that you can't say anything you want about the prophet or defile the Quran or um, defile the prophet, things like that, whatever it happens to be. And there is a difference there because in the West we, you know, um, and this is what I grew up with coming from a secular background is everything goes and it's up to the free market of ideas and all of that. And that is actually a difference. And you do see, I think, a clash of values and how people view issues like blasphemy. Um, what I would say, though, is that when it comes to, let's say, if you're a French Muslim, to give an example, you should be free, or to put it differently, you should have the right to believe that um, that blasphemy uh, should be illegal. We don't have to like that, and we can find that to be terrible. That's bad. Everything. But people are allowed to believe in illiberal things as long as they express those views legally, peacefully, and through the democratic process. So as long as they're respecting French law and not breaking it or going around it, then they can believe that as a personal thing, whether or not we agree with them or not. People all over the world believe in very objectionable things. The question is, do they respect the laws of a land they live in? Um, and so I think that... For a liberal society to truly be liberal, it has to respect that some of its citizens are going to hold views that may be illiberal. And I would argue, too, that, you know, it used to be the case that when I would talk about illiberal democracy, it wasn't necessarily something that Americans would very easily relate to because, um, you know, small L liberalism, classical liberalism, and democracy have gone hand in hand in our own history and we've seen those two, you know. So when we say democracy, it's almost shorthand for liberal democracy, right? But what's interesting now, um, and it's sad it had to come to this, but for the first time, we as Americans might actually elect an illiberal 
Democrat as our president, i.e. Donald Trump, meaning someone who would be who would have a democratic mandate. He would be my legitimate president, whether I like him or not, because if the American people vote him in. But is he committed to non-negotiable rights and freedoms, including of minorities and respecting the Bill of Rights and the rule of law? That's where Donald Trump's commitments are a little are somewhat questionable. And that's where there's a real tension. He's he's not committed to our liberal protections on rights and freedoms. We'll have to wait and see exactly what he does, but he could be democratically elected. So these tensions are are very real, um, even here in the U.S. Uh, well, Shadia, I hate to bring this conversation to a close, but uh, I do want to ask you one final question, maybe bringing sure. it back to the yeah. personal. What do you think is the most misunderstood thing about Islam today? There's not like one thing that I can really point to. Um, because there are just so many things that I wish people would would make an effort to understand a little bit more. But I also do realize and recognize that Islam does seem different. And that's why people struggle here in the U.S. and Europe to really get a handle on it because, you know, for some of the reasons that we've discussed, um, it does seem to be less, let's say, diluted than Christianity is in, in Europe. Um, there does seem, it does seem to have a power and a relevance that may seem foreign to us. I mean, if you've grown up in New York, D.C., in the bastions of Northeastern elite liberalism, I think it's hard to appreciate the kind of everyday magic of religion, the supernatural, what's, what's, you know, not just this life, but what's to come, that people actually care about getting into heaven. And that's, that could actually be like on their list of, on their like, hey, here's my list of priorities. Hey, I kind of want to get into heaven. Let me work on that. I think that that seems weird to us. It sounds bizarre. Um, and I think it really requires a kind of leap of faith to, it's not to, to really accept it because we don't have to like it. We don't have to like it. We don't have to agree with it. But I think we have to make an effort to understand where other people are coming from, that we're all a product of our own context. So I'm a product of uh, a liberal, secular society, and that affects how I myself view um, religion. And I'm skeptical of the role that religion can play or should play in government. I wouldn't want that in my own country, whether I was American or a citizen of another country. But I, I mean, I think understanding that, hey, but not everyone grew up the way that we did. People are products of different societies with different hi histories and different cultures. And what that requires more than anything else is, and especially now, especially with all the polarization and division that we're seeing, and it almost seems sometimes when you wake up in the morning and look at Twitter, that our world is falling apart. It's a scary feeling, and it's maybe amplified by social media, but it feels like we're entering into a very scary phase. And look, I have a darkened view of human nature in part because I've spent a lot of time in the Middle East and I've seen it up close. So I think with all of that in mind, my hope is a fairly modest one that we can agree to disagree. We don't have to like people and people can even hate each other. But if they hate each other, they should agree to hate each other peacefully and at least make an effort to understand um, you know, 
where other other religions, races, ethnicities, whatever it might be, what their own context is. And to realize that, hey, we aren't all the same. We don't have to all be the same. But, you know, for better or worse, we kind of do have to live with each other, including here in the U.S. So if, I, if there are people who think that um, my parents shouldn't have been allowed in this country, I have to be willing to talk to them. I'm, I'm going to try my best to to show them a different way of looking at things. But they are American. I'm American. And we're going to have to talk to each other, I guess. Well, Shadi, this has been a truly fascinating conversation. I appreciate your candor and your time today. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You can learn more about Shadi Hamid on our website at brookings.edu. A group of Brookings experts recently contributed their insight and ideas to a series of blog posts called Rights and Responsibilities, Solutions to the Syrian Refugee Crisis. One of these experts was Constanza Stelzenmiller, who is the Robert Boss Senior Fellow in the Center on the U.S. and Europe. Here she is with her views on how Germany is embarking on what she calls a radical social experiment when it comes to refugees. My name is Constanze Stelzenmüller. I am the Robert Bosch Senior Fellow at the Center for the U.S. and Europe at the Brookings Institution. Now, my country, Germany, is about to embark on a radical social experiment. It will determine whether the huge wave of refugees that washed over Europe last year will be a boon to the continent or a catastrophe. Recently, Germany's legislature debated a new law on integration, the country's first. It requires asylum seekers to take lessons in language, culture and values in exchange for faster access to the labor market. The government has also promised to subsidize 100,000 new working opportunities, many of them low-paid workfare jobs. Labor laws will be relaxed to make hiring refugees easier. But newcomers without a job will have to stay in the municipality first assigned to them. Those who reject these rules face cuts to their support. The purpose of these new measures is to prevent the rise of parallel societies, as seen in Belgium or in France, or indeed the ghettos that sprang up in large German cities after the arrival of hundreds of thousands of Turkish guest workers, as they were called, beginning in the 1960s. Still, it hasn't quite sunk in abroad and at home that Germany has had quite a successful history of integrating strangers. Today, an estimated one and a half million German citizens have a Turkish background. And together with a significant influx of war refugees and economic migrants from around the world, of Jews and ethnic Germans from the Soviet Union, they have all together already changed the face of my country. Today's challenge, however, is on an entirely different level, and not just because of its size. Refugees from war zones such as Syria and Afghanistan are often severely traumatized. Acquiring the skills and knowledge to fit into Germany's economy and society will be hard for many, and those who are not bona fide refugees will have to be sent back. The biggest surprise of the great refugee wave of 2015 was how German institutions were swamped and how citizens calmly stepped in to help the new arrivals. Most of us would have expected it to be the other way around. But now civil society is overwhelmed and the populist party alternative for Germany is capitalizing on widespread anxiety and anger. Chancellor Angela Merkel's adversaries are circling her, probing for weak spots. The chancellor so far has rightly resisted caps to the asylum right in Germany's constitution. But in pragmatic Merkel fashion, she has accepted controls at Germany's borders and made a deal with Turkey, giving billions in aid in return for keeping refugees away from Europe. However, migrants are still attempting by the thousands to cross the Mediterranean, now often via Libya, and many die in the attempt. German police recently 
arrested suspected members of an alleged Islamic State terrorist cell, possibly foiling a plot to commit a major terrorist attack. All three were Syrian and had come to Europe as refugees. A senior civil servant in Berlin told me recently, all of this will completely change the face of Germany. But for this experiment to succeed, it will have to reinforce the capacities of communities and regions to turn the new arrivals into productive and peaceful members of society. It will have to reinforce and link up the domestic intelligence and security services while increasing oversight and accountability. And Germany will also have to develop a much more comprehensive and forceful foreign policy for Northern Africa and the Middle East. That's a tall order, even for a state as powerful and wealthy as Germany is. But failure would be a disaster for Europe and for transatlantic relations. A lot rides on Berlin getting it right, not least for the United States. Although you wouldn't know it from watching this U.S. election campaign. Thank you. You can listen to our recent episode with Bobby McKenzie, who organized this effort, to learn more about this research. And that's all for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria. My thanks to our audio engineer and producer, Zach Kolzer, with editing help from Mark Holscher. Plus, thanks to Chris Anichi, Bill Finan, Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahan, Rebecca Weiser, and our intern, Sarah Abdel-Rahim. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes and listen to it in all the usual places. You can send feedback email to bcp at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.